One, two, three. The following audio exclusive features the entire uncut interview with NDN Collective's Director of Racial Equity, Sonny Redbear of the Lakota Nation. Excerpts of this interview were included in our recent special, Land Back, a teepee town approach to healing and homelessness. In the special feature, Laura traveled to the sacred Black Hills of South Dakota, where NDN Collective is reclaiming ancestral lands to address homelessness, addiction, and violence against Native Americans. She reported on Camp Menelusahan, a teepee village built on tribal trust land that welcomed hundreds of unhoused indigenous people and others in the Rapid City area in the dead of winter last year. I'm Laura Flanders, and I'm speaking to you, I think, from Muncie Lenape land here in um, mm. almost the Delaware River Valley. Awesome. Yeah, my name is Sunny Redbear, and I am the Director of Racial Equity at Indian Collective. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I am Mini Koju and Hukapapa Lakota from the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe in north central south dakota is where i grew up very small town i've been an advocate for for many years so just kind of stepping into a new role as director and yeah trying to use my skills in that way so let's start by talking about creek patrol um what was it why was it needed and how did you get involved yeah, creek patrol is still going it's it's just such amazing community mutual aid effort that was started by um, six people that just saw a need in our community. This need has existed from, you know, time immemorial of just being good relatives to each other. But we see that more and more with our unhoused relatives is that they need, they need support, they need protection, um, and they need people to advocate for them. And um, there's a lot of gaps in services wherever you are, whatever city you um, reside in. And so Creek Patrol was kind of a, a call to action, as you will, um, by a group of ind- individuals that just saw that need and that went out there and just did the work, which um, so many times we get like caught up in that bureaucracy, right? Like we're like, we got to figure this out. We have to have this plan. We have to have like all our ducks in a row. And what they did was they just went out there and did the thing. And it was pretty amazing. So um Creek Patrol has um, constantly evolved and become a community safety group, basically. And so um, just really lucky to be be a part of it. They started uh, over a year ago now, and I came into Creek Patrol about three months later. And yeah. Who who needed safety and and from whom? So our, yeah, our unhoused relatives, we have, we have a history of of our our people living along the Rapid Creek. Um, The Rapid Creek is where Rapid City got its name from. Um, And um, it was called uh, Mini Luzaha, which is swift or rapid water. And many of our relatives gravitate towards that, right? Like water's life, it has energy, you know, there's there's safety in it. Um, And so a lot of our unhoused relatives stay along that creek and that's their home, you know? Um, And so, they uh, Creek Patrol would walk a route right near the creek. It's about four and a half to five mile route that they would wa- walk every single evening and just make sure that they had basic needs. You know, do you need a blanket? Do you need water? We have food. Check on them. See if they need any medical attention. Um, 
and also making sure that they're not being harassed. You know, a lot of, there's a lot of harassment um, along that creek when people know that these people are vulnerable and then also know that there's no repercussions or, you know, consequences to actually inflicting harm or violence on, on the unhoused. And so we saw that a lot, you know, they were kind of the, the victims to um, people's aggression meant much, uh, much of the time. And so, yep, they would, they would oftentimes just make sure that, you know, that sometimes they would roll up on people and check on them and be, they had just gotten beat up, you know, or like we would come up on them and like they're in the middle of a, you know, a conflict. And so just making sure that people were safe, that they got the medical attention they needed. And then also just like protecting them from, from people harassing them. And, and the, the, the violence that was inflicted on them was from a number of people, like everywhere from like uh, teenagers to, to older or middle-aged, you know, white males. Like, it was just very interesting to just see the different dynamics that played out over there. What was Camp Miniluzahan able to do that city services weren't doing? Oh, wow. Um, there's the list. <laughs> I, I think the biggest thing is that they, that we saw them as, as relatives, that we saw them as humans. Um, they weren't just a number that we weren't, we weren't getting funding for them. Um, but that it, pro- it provided a safe space for them to, to be. I think so many times that like within our cities, within, within our communities, there's not many places to actually be and exist without feeling that you have to buy something or commit to something. Right. And so camp was, was an opportunity to not only come for, for safety, to, to come sleep, get a meal, get warming items, uh, create connections with other people in the community, but that it was literally a place for them to just be. And um, I think that that is something that we lose sight of much of the time is that like, we think that when you become unhoused that you somehow lose the ability to make decisions for yourself. And I think that when you provide a space for people to, to self-govern and to step into their self-determination um, and when you actually trust them to do that, they, they do. And they just need a little bit of uh, space to do that. So, Hermes described um, first seeing the camp, um, and I talked about how it felt being there. Even myself, you could feel the energy there. Mm-hmm. What's your keenest memory of of Camp Minuluzahan once it got started? What's what's how did it sound, smell, oh man, look like, feel like? How did you feel? So I'm imagining wearing my overalls I wore these these great overalls like every single day because we were like literally in it right um the smell of burning wood of wood stoves you would walk around and like that crisp winter air um it's just like this fresh air and you're surrounded by the black hills you're surrounded by trees by the land it was such a beautiful and um, although it was challenging, like, I mean, beyond challenging, it was like one of the best experiences of my life. And it pushed me to a, a it pushed me outside of my comfort zone. It, it pushed me to a limit of, of, of like connecting with people on a whole different level. 
Um, and so for me, that experience was, it was life-changing for me. Um, and when you, when you arrived at camp, like everybody, like there was no hierarchy, there was no, like this person is in charge. And like, we have to listen to this person. It was like this community of like, just wanting to take care of each other. And it was just really beautiful. I mean, it didn't, it didn't, you know, um, there was the challenges and like the things that we had to, to work through, but it was, it was really amazing to see what happens when people truly commit to taking care of each other and making it work. Um, I think that that's one of the biggest things that was that, you know, the difference between the city services that it's not, it wasn't institutionalized. It wasn't like, you know, a lot of the, the city services, when you, when you step in like your foot in those buildings, it, it feels like jail, you know, it's like the white walls, the brick, you know, the brick walls, the locked doors, the, you know, you got to hand over your items to this person who may give them back, you know, um, there's no, um, yeah. And I just, I just think that camp was just like a really beautiful experience of connecting to the land. And that was probably the most important part for myself and for the relatives too. Can you talk a bit more about that? I mean, outside of the white walls and the white people and handing everything over Mm -hmm. Um, at the camp, can you talk a little bit about how reclaiming land and reclaiming heritage, including your heritage and identity connected, connected for you? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, for me, I was, uh, I was adopted when I was two days old and I was, I was, um, I grew up in a a non-native family and, um, I, I eventually ran away when I was 17 years old and I, I connected back to my culture, which I was not allowed to do, um, growing up. And so I've, I've been immersed in my culture for, um, many years now. And what I see though, is that because of colonization, because of assimilation, so many of our unhoused relatives are actually those that are victims of, you know, boarding schools or the the um, the grandchildren of um, boarding school survivors. And what I saw was that we inherently have have and carry this knowledge with us of our culture, of who we are, our identity. And many times we're not allowed to live that out in in everyday spaces. And what I saw was that you know, many times, like there's so many of us that were at camp that, um, were a part of camp and a polling camp that we didn't have training. We didn't, we didn't like, you know, go into like camp mini lose hunt training and like learn how to take care of each other. Like it was like this inherent knowledge that we carried with us. And I think that like what that allowed us to do is like for one connect to the land, which I felt like was, was very, very important Um, but also it created like this, this system of accountability and like relying on each other and, and finding purpose within camp and, you know, just being in the land, being away from things that are distracting us from really truly connecting to each other, um, I thought was really powerful. And it it was also that like camp was away from a lot of the, you know, it was away from the, the stores away from like being in the city. And so what that did was like, it just created like this respite, like peaceful place that we could, we could be and um, literally hear nothing, you know, and and at night we could look up and see the stars. And it was like, 
like those moments in time when you're like, wow, you know, there's so much more out there. So it seems, I don't want to say ironic. It seems poignant perhaps that some, that the land connects to that boarding school story. There's a boarding school um, in Rapid City where um, that was really right directly near where Camp Miniluza um, existed. And really when we talk about the creek, our relatives used to used to um, make camp along that creek because they wanted to be closer to their children in, in the boarding schools. The buildings actually still exist. They're, they're now a hospital, but the, the boarding schools, when we talked about the creek, um, our relatives would, would camp along that creek. And that there's a long, like when I talk about the history, that was part of the history. They, it, it was called Oshkosh Camp. And, and the parents and the, the families would come and camp there in order to be closer to the children in the boarding schools. There's just that connection. There's this connection of, of dis, displacement, of uh, colonization. And what was interesting too is that Oshkosh camp was also relocated. They were forcibly removed from the creek as well. And then they got pushed north of town and got put in the middle of nowhere that had had no food, they had uh, no running water, no nothing over there as well. And so it's just like this long history of constantly being displaced. And now we have our unhoused relatives that are over there and the city does their sweeps and they take their blankets and they take their their items. And so, yeah, like when we when we talk about Camp Miniluzaha, that is a direct reclamation of our lands. That is tribal trust land. That is an opportunity. And also, how do I want to say it? It's a, it's a teaching moment of, of what could happen. We're, we're envisioning what could be if we actually had control of our lands and what it would mean to have land back. And um, so we were on this, this piece of sovereign territory that where we not once in eight months called police, we didn't need more policing. We didn't need people to come up and, and um, criminalize those that were, are struggling. And what that did was it gave us an opportunity to, to self-govern, to, to govern ourselves and work through and de-escalate and do all the things that we needed to do in order to keep um, a healthy environment for our relatives. And we were able to do that. And it's all through relationality that so many people forget about. We forget about creating relationships within our communities, with the people that we live next to, to our neighbors. And so um, camp is a, is a direct um, example of, of what could be. Granted, it was not perfect, but man, if you, if you could just imagine what that would be like in a community that is, for one, resourced, connected to the land, has that relationality, putting people first, people above property, right? And um, yeah, and supporting each other. So We've talked a little bit about racism, colonialism, capitalism. What about patriarchy and gender-based violence? How do you integrate that into this story and into your work there at NDN? That just goes hand in hand with, with being a good relative. I think understanding the roles that we play and making those very clear. I think um, when we talk about creating a space where our unhoused relatives can be heard, it's not just our unhoused relatives, it's everybody is creating this equity and equality across the board right? That everybody's idea matters. And that's one thing that we um, really strived for at camp was we would have camp meetings where, you know, like I said, there was no hierarchy. There was like, 
there's no, um, you are like, these are our ideas and you need to listen to us. It was like, we sat together and we listened to the unhoused relatives of, of how are things working? Like, what would you change? What would you like? You know, what are your ideas? And I think that, um, naturally what happened is that when we talk about patriarchy and that colonization, like that kind of falls to the wayside as, as we start trusting each other and understanding our roles. And when we understand our roles, we, we create purpose. And when we have that purpose, like people are driven to, to do the thing that they know how to do in order to like help the relatives at camp. I think that native people oftentimes are, we're always like pushing against something or we're fighting something, you know, and sometimes we forget to just embrace, embrace like who we are and what we inherently know. And so I think that at camp, that's, that's how we stepped into those roles. And then also making sure that people's voices are heard and, and really tapping back into that matriarchal um, mindset, you know, of really caring for each other. This is a crucial story for native people, but is it, is it only a story for them, for you? No, not at all. I think that I think that this is um, an example of what this means to not only be a good ally, but to um, to really give us spaces and and when we talk about decision making, allowing us to be a part of those things. Like we know what's best for ourselves. Each person knows what what's best for themselves, and being able to allow ourselves to trust that. And so when we talked about Camp Mini Luzaha, this was a community effort. It was a mutual aid effort that like spanned across cultures, but really understanding that this is our indigenous land. This is, this is where our ancestors come from. And like for us to connect to that was more of healing on our part, right? But once we heal ourselves, like we're healing our community. And so we had many people um, that donated um, supplies, donated meals, donated their time um, to really learn and come and see what it looks like to be able to create something like this. And so just really fortunate to feel so supported in this project, in this um, community that we built. I guess I just think that there's an awful lot of people that will be resonating with your story as you just described it of reconnecting mm-hmm. <laughs> with other people and with land who aren't anything to do with indigenous or may not think of themselves that way, but have that same sense of dislocation, disconnection, alienation. Yeah. It's particular, but it's not unique. Right. Yes. So to people elsewhere who perhaps face some of the same challenges, native people and others, how can they do what you've done? Can they do what you've done? What what you're engaged in doing? How can they Mm -hmm pick up the, the campaign of, of Land Back. Yeah, absolutely. Land Back is just like one of the campaigns from Indian Collective, right? And it's huge, it's a lot to carry. But what I learned, I think the most is how powerful my two hands were. Being able to really just stop questioning everything, stop questioning, am I allowed to do this? Can I do this? Do, um, do I have the skills to do this? And just really just going out there and doing what you can with what you have. And I think that anybody can do that and you're, you're going to make a difference and you're going to make an impact. And if not, just not for your community, but for yourself and understanding what it is to connect to other people and understanding what it is to build empathy 
uh, within yourself and, and those teachable moments. Um, for me and my campaign, um, I have a racial equity campaign that is very much focused on our unhoused relatives. And one of the things that we're working on right now is actually building a toolkit for other communities to start their own camps and what that would look like for you. You know, this is just like, it's a template. It's like, this is what we did. Um, if you don't want to reinvent the wheel, this is how we um, did inventory. This is how we had donation drop-offs. This is what we asked for in donations. These are the meals that we cooked. <laughs> These are the contracts that we made. All the things that we had to learn on the spot. We are like, every single day was like um, conflict resolution. It was like brainstorming on like, we don't have running water. What, okay, you know, now what do we do? Well, you know, we, we get a 450 gallon water tank that we fill, fill every two days. Well, how do we keep it from freezing? You know, all of these things that would just like come up sporadically and we were just like, you know, solving them on the spot. Well, we're creating a toolkit so that people don't have surprises like that, you know, but the biggest part of the toolkit for me is starting to create that conversation. What Camp Mini Luzahan did was provided a home for our unhoused in these eight months. But the bigger thing that it did, it was it challenged people's thinking of like what is possible and what people are comfortable with. I mean, when we had Camp Mini Luzahan, our community was uncomfortable. They were so uncomfortable with a bunch of you know, Native Americans up on this hill on sovereign land, and we can't even go up there because we don't have the rights to go up there. And like, what are they doing? And they're going to set the hills on fire. Like, oh my gosh, all these things, you know, and here we are up there just like connecting and healing. Um, but what that does is, is it push people out of their comfort zone in order to like start learning and evolving your thinking outside of the city services, out of, outside of governmental funding, and really puts it back in the hands of the community. What can we do with, you know, in our communities? And so that's something that we're doing right now is creating that toolkit um, for people that either live on tribal land or are not on tribal land. Um, people are gonna have to do their research on like what their ordinances and their policies are within their city. But that doesn't mean like not pushing the limits. I think that these things need to be challenged. They have to be in challenge in order for things to change, so. It seems like we're getting that message from every place that we've gotten lazy about letting other people doing do stuff and do stuff badly um, mm. that we actually need to do ourselves more mm. and better. Just to come back to you for a second, you mentioned a little bit of your own story. And as we think of the community, the unhoused community, the people uh, mm. that we have in our towns and cities and rural areas, what are the special challenges or are there special challenges that unhoused native women and girls face when they're in that situation and how do you address that and how can we address that it's a loaded question for sure for me growing up there were times in my life when I was unhoused my mom was an unhoused person and so I grew up uh, trying to figure out how to care for her and love her in the best way possible, knowing that she was choosing this lifestyle at, at some points. And maybe it wasn't necessarily her choosing it. It was her trauma, right? Telling her what she deserved or what she didn't deserve. And so I think the challenges are, is that so many times we get into like the relatives and our unhoused that have accepted 
what life has given them and their, their, um, their trauma has allowed them and like Stockholm syndrome and all those things like have told them what they deserve. And I think that it's really hard for them to get out of that. It's hard for them to realize like, Hey, like, I know that this will, you know, make do, but like you actually deserve this. Right. And so trying to convince them and like teach them, um, like what they should expect from other people and expect as far as treatment. Um, I also think that, you know, because of the traumas, you know, unhoused and, and houselessness is just a symptom that there's all these root causes of, of why these people are there in the first place. And so many times, you know, it's kind of like the, that, um, uh, that picture of the iceberg, right. Where you see the tip of the iceberg, you just see unhoused people that are, you know, fighting addictions, but then down below, you don't see all of the historical trauma that they carry or the, the trauma they've experienced in their own lifetimes. And so, um, I think that when we, we start thinking about that area, we start thinking about women and, and girls and how not only are they put and created um, these vulnerable situations for them, but they are literally targeted and they're targeted for many reasons. Um, a lot of, a lot to do with the, the lack of accountability and consequences of, of mistreating, killing, murdering, kidnapping women and, and girls. And I, and I don't want to just say women and girls because this happens across the board, but, you know, we, we have a movement called MMIW, which is the missing and murdered indigenous women. I've worked with them and in that movement for several years. Um, and that's where I first came into, um, into activism as you will. And, um, man, it's heavy. There's so many things that tie into it. And, um, and so many things that are like, so parallel to the relatives that are unhoused, right? Oftentimes we think like, oh, they're vulnerable, but no, they, they oftentimes are targeted because of their situations. And so for one, just being mindful of those things, um, we have to have situ situational awareness all the time. We have to start, you know, taking notes within our, our own phones of, of, Hey, um, this person's missing. Um, are we able to help help check in on them? Like, have we seen them? Um, and Creek Patrol does a lot of that work. Many times we get a lot of messages from relatives of saying, Hey, you know, they have accepted that they have unhoused relatives within their family, but they want to check in on them and they don't know how to do that. So they'll, they'll contact us and say, Hey, this person, you know, my sister, I haven't seen her or heard from her in a week. And so we get a picture and we put it into our group chat and say, Hey, let's look out for this person you know, um, but oftentimes, um, in the last, in this last year, there was 43 people now that have passed away, um, that are unhoused in like our small community, you know, um, and there are people that are missing some of the people that were at camp that we knew very well that were like family to us are missing. And yeah, we've searched, we've searched, we've had community searches. We've had dogs come in, and we've tried to do everything we can, but understanding that um, there are predators out there that, um, yeah, take advantage of of the of these people and their situations. And so, yeah. I remember when I was there in whatever that was, July, and the Red Road came through the totem pole journey. And mm -hmm. I think it was one of the tribal leaders there from the town said, 
that in th the previous three months there'd been like 15 women and girls disappeared. I mean, maybe it was just mm -hmm. girls disappeared, maybe taken. Yeah. Uh, it's just the numbers. People outside have no idea yeah. um, how prevalent. So to end on a more positive note, the changes that you're working on and the challenges that you're you know, working to address and addressing in your work are enormous. Um, <laughs> we've named huge historic ones. And as you just described, it's multiple diverse, interconnecting, deep, um, heavy. I often end the show by asking our guests um, when in their lives have they experienced something or met somebody or been somewhere that gave them the sense that the changes that you're seeking, the changes that you're seeking um, aren't just possible, but are actually palpable. Mm. Um, have you ever had a feeling of the change you want to see? Yeah, no, I think that that was every day at camp. I think that's also every day that I see the relatives and like we recognize each other. And um, just the other day, try not to get emotional, um, a couple of weeks ago. So it's funny because we always joke around about like everybody had their favorite at camp. Like, you know, there's this person you just connect with and um, they're your favorite. And so I had my favorite and um, his name was Sheldon. And I ran into him on the street the other day and um, he came up to me and it was, it was at night and I was, um, I had just got done eating at a restaurant and I came out and was walking across the street with some friends and, and he, he had his head down and he was like, ma'am, ma'am, would, do you have any spare change? And I was like, I looked at him and I said, Sheldon. And he looked at me and he just started crying and he just grabbed me. And, um, he said, Sonny, Sonny, I didn't know if I'd see you again. And, and where have you been? And I've been looking for you. I've been praying. I run into you and we just hugged each other and we're both just bawling. And, um, in those moments, it, it's a, it's a sense of connection that, um, it's like on that, that human level of just needing people. And I think that that was every day at camp. And I see that every day, like, as I go downtown and I see her unhoused and I, I pass by them on the street when I'm driving, I'm like, oh, you know, there's Mary and there's Gilbert and, you know, and then stop and check on them and be like, hey, are you guys good today? Like, do you guys need anything? Um, and I think that that is the, the type of, of change that I see when we talk about the theory of change, oftentimes we're thinking like organized organizational, like we talk about projects and all that stuff, but we forget that the theory of change happens within ourselves. It happens within ourselves every time that we're experiencing something new and a new way to connect to people. And I think that that is, that is what's going to change the world. That's what's going to change the situations for people in our communities and our families um, and those are the things that, that continue to drive me to, to do the, to do the work that we're doing is like, I'm not looking for that boom, big bang, like change, like all of a sudden we wake up and like racial equity, you know, like what, what I'm looking for is that connectivity is that heart to heart type stuff that, 
um, gives me what I need to like keep moving forward. Um, and literally if, it, if it's just one person, it's worth it. And so, yeah, I think that those are my, those are my moments. Those are my moments of knowing that like, I'm on the right track that I'm, I'm fighting for, um, like knowing what I'm fighting for and knowing that it's possible and continuing to be motivated to do that. Well, I think you just gave a whole bunch of people, um, that moment, uh, in this day and, and in the days that, uh, they will see this show.